0: Thanks for joining me for the first approximately half of Romans 11. We're going to be taking some interesting, slightly different approaches to these 16 verses, so I want to jump right into it. I'll be reading, as always, in the Phillips translation. Here we go. This leads naturally to the question, has God then totally repudiated his people? Certainly not. I myself, for one, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. It is unthinkable that God should have repudiated his own people, the people whose destiny he himself appointed. Don't you remember what the scripture says in the story of Elijah? How he pleaded with God on Israel's behalf. Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And you remember God's reply? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In just the same way, there is at the present time a minority chosen by the grace of God. And if it is a matter of the grace of God, it cannot be a question of their actions especially deserving God's favor, for that would make grace meaningless. What conclusion do we reach now? that Israel did not, on the whole, obtain the object of his striving, but a chosen few got there, while the remainder became more and more insensitive to the righteousness of God. This is borne out by the scripture. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, unto this very day. And David says of them, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow thou down their back always. Some good kind of old versions there for you. But as you listen to that, that was actually verses one through 10. I would say we have here a section that not only deals in the same subject matter as chapter 10, but also really delves back into some of the same themes as chapter 9. The ideas of his choice, meaning God's choice versus human choosing, and the nature of grace and judgment as it relates to the Israelite people. I mean, how the story of their spiritual journey with Yahweh relates to really the whole human journey with reference to Yeshua, Jesus, God incarnate. And I think you you know me. I'm going to want to do this a little strangely. You might remember two weeks ago, I talked about my theory that the new covenant is meant to mirror the patterns of the old covenant, just sort of opposite of going in the other direction. And I'll tell you too, for some reason, I have just been on a big John Keats poetic kick lately. I, it's like I've been hearing life... And just normal conversations and words with this poetic cadence, no matter what I do. So I want to tell you, picture me this week. I'm reading about Israel's old covenant journey, and I'm even noticing the meter with which Paul's words are rolling along in this chapter. And next thing I know, this is, again, mirrored from back to front. I was transcribing his words, putting them into that sort of mirrored, inverse ordering And it's become this, I don't know, kind of a blank verse poem of where we stand in Jesus right now. Strange, I know. So here's what I want to do I'm just going to read that to you. And who knows, maybe you'll even want to press pause for a minute and pay attention in these words I'm about to share with you to what jumps off the page at you. In our new covenant, sort of going in reverse motion, What is he drawing your heart to right now? So here we have it, inspired by my old friend Keats, a little poem of the new covenant. Always we bow and see him, that our eyes may be enlightened, that he is our recompense, our cornerstone, our home who prepares a table before us. The son of David This very day has opened our ears and made our eyes to see, has given us the Spirit as our clarity. He has been borne out by the scriptures. The righteousness of God is our new sensitivity. We chosen few who have been brought here to obtain the object of His striving, His body, His church, yes, the whole of us. Now, what conclusions do we reach? That grace is our meaning. That God's favor is not a question of our actions. It is a matter of His grace alone. For we were chosen by that grace, we His flock, in this present time, in just the way He's always done. So yes, we only bow our knee to Him, for we are the number who belong to Him. And do you remember His own word to us? They have taken my life, and yet you are never alone. You, my living altars upon the earth. You, the new prophets of the Lord Most High. And do you remember how he pleaded with God on your behalf? What the scriptures say in the story of the Father's plan? That the children of God have destinies he himself appoints. Unthinkable it is that he should ever repudiate us. For you yourself are a child of God, a follower of Jesus, an integral member attached to this, the very body of Christ. Certainly it is so. So this leads naturally to the everlasting declaration. God has totally vindicated his children. Well, like I said before, What did you notice there? What sort of jumped off the page as you listened to the cadence of my words? I hope there was something for you. In fact, you could take a moment, pause the podcast, and perhaps talk to him about it. All right, let's go on. Now I ask myself was this fall of theirs an utter disaster? It was not. For through their failure, the benefit of salvation has passed to the Gentiles, with the result that Israel is made to see and feel what it has missed. And just to remind you, the list of what they've missed, as he says there, was already actually given by Paul in the opening of chapter 9. I want you to listen to it again. Just think what the Israelites have had given to them the privilege of being adopted as sons of God, the experience of seeing something of the glory of God, the receiving of the agreements made with God, the gift of the law, true ways of worship, God's own promises, all these are theirs. The patriarchs are theirs, and so too, as far as human descent goes, is Christ himself, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And as we talked about two weeks ago, If you have missed Jesus, then the patriarchs are of no account and God's promises fall to the ground null. And if you zero out the promises, then the worship becomes dead formulas and the glory of obedience gets exchanged for the strictures of lifeless religion. And if religion takes the place of heart-to-heart heavenly agreements— Then the expectation of experiential glory gets lost. And then frankly, no one walks in the wonder of God's adoption. So to paraphrase Paul here, I mean, in short, what they missed is that missing the son, missing that one who made it all so, is the exact way to invalidate the invitation into sonship. Friends, you must know Jesus to enter the family. He is our only entry point. We'll keep reading. For if their failure has so enriched the world and their defection proves such a benefit to the Gentiles, think what tremendous advantages their fulfilling of God's plan could mean. And I remember, if you happen to be at Anchor last week, this came up in our conversation. But I just love to think of the sheer glorious drama that was that moment in the book of Acts between Peter and Cornelius. Peter, yes, chosen by Jesus and quote, fulfilling God's plan for his life, entering that house of Cornelius and watching the Holy Spirit do all the work. And Cornelius now, a righteous Gentile centurion, a literal face of Roman might, now operating within the Roman ranks on behalf of another kingdom. Friends, you're probably a Gentile as you listen to my voice right now. So I would say we Gentiles should absolutely dream of seeing our Jewish friends or our spiritual godparents really experiencing the power of Jesus for themselves. And if you've ever seen it click with one of your Jewish friends, like they've actually come under the goodness of Jesus, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's absolutely breathtaking to behold. But let's finish reading this section. Now a word to you who are Gentiles. I should like you to know that I make as much as I can of my ministry as God's messenger to the Gentiles, so as to make my kinsfolk jealous and thus save some of them. For if their exclusion from the pale of salvation has meant the reconciliation of the rest of mankind to God, what would their inclusion mean? It would be nothing less than life from the dead. If the flower is consecrated to God, so is the whole loaf. And if the roots of a tree are dedicated to God, every branch will belong to him also. You know, two of the things I maybe most admire about Paul are his spiritual eyes for the outsider. And just as important, this gift he has for envisioning heavenly potential in others. He will just not give up on anyone. That's the first thing. And imagining them in, he just can't stop thinking of what that might mean, how their salvation might be some first glorious domino to fall, how their inclusion might open the door to so many others. But did you know there really is a nexus point for both of these things? There's a place where eyes for the lost and vision for heavenly potentiality meet up. It's you. It's me. We together, the body of Christ, are meant to be the living invitation and the limitless picture of what this is. Do you ever stop to think of what it would mean? I mean, how the world around us would react if... Even for just one week, we all lived up to our heavenly privileges. I actually love this word Paul uses here, jealous. Because think about people actually seeing this. Men and women, strangely unconcerned for their temporal needs, as if those things are already forever accounted for. People who are totally unafraid. Men, women, and children so lost within a heavenly love that all other loves, likes, relationships are just saturated with the flavor of that love. People secure, respectful, and self-respecting with no need for earthly accolades or any sort of spotlight at all a segment of humanity who are already one with God, uh, exhibiting his own personal character, and thus are already one with each other, just filled with an active, observable affection that is, you could call it, otherworldly. Friends, if that was the flower and the roots of our fellowship, don't you think we'd be drawing a whole different sort of attention to him? Isn't it possible that if you and I abide in Jesus, if we really enjoy what's ours in him, that we might fill the world's heart with a heavenly jealousy? Well, I would say that there's only one way to find out. So this week, what do you think? Should we just go live it? Thanks for listening.